Get to see everybody. Just let me pray for us one more time as we dive into this word. Lord, thank you so much again for this time, and um, it's been such a good morning remembering your goodness and faithfulness towards us. I pray you would help me during this time and help all of us uh, to see uh, who you are and to see how you care for us, um, even in, in difficult circumstances. And we thank you for this word. Uh, we thank you for the gospel of John <clears throat> and the time we've had in it. And uh, we pray that uh, you would bless us today and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we uh, care about people and when we love people, we want them to be prepared for what is ahead. And this is especially true, I think, when the people that we love are facing transitions in life, especially major transitions. If we can help them to be ready, you know, we want to do that. And one of the bigger transitions uh, in my life was getting married. And I remember being uh, both uh, excited and fearful <laughs> before I got married. And it was really good to have uh, friends around me and family around me that talked to me, that helped me to prepare for what was ahead. And, you know, the best advice, I think, came from the people who didn't sugarcoat things, but from the people who knew enough and cared enough to say, look, there's a lot of good in this transition, but there's going to be some hard things uh, as well. And one of those people that cared in that way was my father-in-law. Uh, he's a very thoughtful guy. He worked as a pastor for many years. He's written a lot about marriage. He even wrote a book uh, about marriage. And he also had an essay that he wrote that he handed to me a few months before I married his daughter. And I don't remember a ton from the essay, but I do remember the title. In fact, everyone in our family remembers the title because the title of the essay was Marriage is Hell. <laughs> and with this essay, you might think he was trying to like scare me away from, from Catherine. I don't think that was what was happening. I think he, he did want us to be married. He just really wanted us to be realistic uh, as we approach this major transition. And you know, marriage is, is one uh, transition that some people experience, but, but married or not, life is obviously full of transitions, uh, big transitions, small transitions, but big transitions can be very weighty and very difficult. And you know, the Bible reflects this because the biblical story is full of transitions as well. We look even in the Old Testament, even all the way back in the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis is actually divided up in this way according to uh, these transitions that happen, different sections with each section being marked by the transition of one leader of the family to another. Abraham giving way to Isaac, Isaac giving way to Jacob, Jacob eventually giving way to Joseph, and so on. And then we look at the continuing story of God's people, and especially we think of the story of Moses who would lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt and towards a new and better land. But before God's people go into the land, there is another transition. And we remember Moses passes the torch to Joshua. And before Moses goes, he gives a long discourse to his people and encourages them for the transition that is ahead as he gets ready to depart. And in some ways, this is the story that's being told again in this section of the Gospel of John. We've been going through a section known as the Upper Room Discourse from John 13 to John 17. We're hearing Jesus' words of farewell and encouragement to his disciples. He's been with them now for about three years, and they've been together, but he is preparing them for what is to come because he knows that a massive transition is about to happen. And it's a transition that will be difficult and it will be painful, but it's one where the disciples will not be left to fend for themselves. 
So in our passage today, we will see Jesus continue to prepare his disciples for what is ahead. And what is ahead for his disciples is in many ways the reality that's continued for the church throughout the ages. And so what Jesus says here is relevant, not just for them, but for us. God gives us these words so that we can be ready as well, because he loves us and cares about us. And in this passage that Matt just read, we will see the danger that Jesus' disciples would face, but also the beginnings of a promise that Jesus gives them as they approach the time of his death. And we'll think about how that promise shapes their response to this danger and how it ultimately does the same thing for us today. So we begin with verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16. I want to read that again and we'll focus on it. Verses 1 to 4 say, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So as we said, when, when we care about people, when we love people, we want them to be prepared for what is ahead. And Jesus sees very clearly what is coming for these disciples. As Max spoke about last week from the previous passage, they are going to experience the hatred of the world. And Jesus knows this is unavoidable, and what he doesn't want is for them to experience it and just give up because it's a surprise, and they didn't know it was coming. Jesus wants to protect them. And when we see that Jesus wants to protect them, we have to understand what Jesus wants to protect them from. And I think it's really interesting that, that Jesus is not looking to protect them from, from suffering and death. He's looking to protect them from falling away because he knows the consequences of them falling away are even greater than life and death, much greater. And so to protect them from the ultimate ruin of walking away from him, Jesus gives them a very gritty, a very realistic take on what their lives are going to look like. Again, we heard last week that the world would hate them, and now Jesus gets even more specific and shows us the form that this hatred will take, and he shows it in two steps. The first step is that they will be put out of the synagogues. Now, I think that that language, obviously, put out of the synagogues, that, that might be a difficult one for us to relate to in many ways. First of all, we don't come to a synagogue, we come to church. Most of us, though, are modern-day Americans, and I think we're also much more individualistic than the Israelites of this time were. And so being put out of a community doesn't always resonate as much with us. And not only that, if you do consider the, the church kind of analogous to the synagogues, which in some ways they are, you know, if you're put out of one church today, it's a lot easier to just go find one on the other side of town. Obviously, that wasn't the case back then, and so being put out was much more dramatic. It was a way, really, of being cut off, and really, in a way, it was kind of like a small death to lose your place in the community in this way. You might remember earlier in the Gospel of John, there, there were some religious leaders who came to put their trust in Jesus, but you know, they didn't want to say it publicly. Why? Because they were afraid they'd be put out of the synagogue, and that would be tremendous loss to them. You might remember in John 9, there was a man who was healed from his blindness. And they come to his parents and say, what happened? And the parents, they, they don't want to get into it. They don't want to talk about it, even though their son has been healed of his blindness. Because why? They're afraid if they say something, they're going to be put out of the synagogue. Being put out of the synagogue was, was a very big deal. And in many ways, like I said, it was kind of a small death. However, this small death is, well, small 
compared to what Jesus says next. Because he tells them they may actually experience death. More specifically, that they may be killed, and even more specifically than that, that they could be killed by people who are not acting in conscious opposition to God, but acting in a manner where they actually think they are serving God by doing this. And I think this is very bracing and very sobering, really, for, for two reasons. The first reason, I think, is somewhat obvious, because we realize this, this is how far it can go in following Jesus. You know, we're not always used to, to thinking about following Jesus in these life and death terms, but that's really what it is. These disciples, here they are, remember the context, they're, they're in Jerusalem, they're, they're thinking that, that great things are about to happen, that, that Jesus is here to reign and rule, they're going to take their place, it's going to be glorious for them. And, and they understand already that, that following Jesus involves sacrifice. Remember, they've left a lot to follow him. They've left behind family, friends, jobs. But now they're seeing that this goes even deeper. They're seeing how deep this sacrifice would be, even to the point of their lives. And that had to be bracing for them, and it should be bracing for us as well. And the second reason that this is sobering is because of Jesus' description of who will do the killing. Again, it's not people who are openly rebelling against God. That would be one thing. Again, in this case, it's people who are attempting in a very misguided way to serve God. Max has quoted Don Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, a few times in recent weeks, so I feel I have a good, good entrance to do that as well. Um, he says uh, of this passage, he says, whether in the first century or in the 20th, he wrote this a little while ago, Christians have often discovered that the most dangerous oppression comes not from careless pagans, but from zealous adherence to religious faith and from other ideologues. Christians have faced severe persecution performed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Allah, in the name of Marx, and in the name of Jesus. But Jesus is quick to point out here that these people who do this, they might think they are doing it for God, but they don't know God, they don't know Jesus. The people who do these things, they will be worshipers, they will be zealous, but their worship and zeal are completely misdirected. And so when we see the persecution of Christians, we need to always remember that it is a double tragedy. It's tragic for those who are persecuted, and it's tragic for those who do the persecuting, because they are just as lost as any of us would be, if not for God's love and grace towards us. And Jesus knows, he says in verse 4, that these people will have their hour, their moment, that it is indeed coming. And Jesus doesn't want the disciples to be surprised. He wants the disciples to see these things and to see the chaos around them. And he wants them to draw more closely to him. He doesn't want them to fall away. And in knowing this truth, I think we can begin to sketch out a Christian response to these kind of trials and this kind of anger and this kind of hatred and persecution. And we're going to build on that and come back to that later because first we need to be informed and formed by what Jesus says next. Because it's one thing to, to draw near to Jesus, but it's another thing entirely when he's not physically there to draw near to. And that's what we get to in verses 5 to 11. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So these are new words, these are new, new thoughts that Jesus is saying, because they haven't been words that the disciples have needed up until now. Why? Up until now, Jesus was with them. And when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't hear of persecution, right, for the most part against the followers of Jesus. We hear about persecution of Jesus himself. But when Jesus departs, Jesus knows that this persecution isn't just going to go away or dissipate. It's going to go now to those who follow Jesus. And so this is the time. Before Jesus' departure, this is the time for these important words. And because this is the time, there are two types of sorrow going on here. First, the disciples are sorrowful because Jesus is leaving them. And they, frankly, have some grim stuff to look forward to. But also, there's a hint of sorrow here from Jesus. Because no one seems to be asking about him and what his fate will be. And that's another reminder that, that even though there were people around Jesus almost all the time in the, the last few days of his life on earth, in many ways, he's very lonely. But even in the midst of this loneliness, look at what he is doing. He is talking to, he's encouraging his disciples. You know, I'm a sports fan. I know many of you are too. And one of the scenarios that, that fascinates me all the time is what happens to a team when their star player isn't there anymore. Maybe there's an injury. Maybe the star player signed with another team. Maybe they demand a trade to cite a more recent local example. And it's funny to, to watch how fans react when this happens. And some fans, and this is what I do, will get despondent. But other fans will go right into pep talk mode. And they start to convince themselves against all odds that, you know, this is actually a good thing. You know, that, that player leaving, that, that's a great opportunity for the other people on the team. Or you know what, that, that star that we lost, the guy that's going to the Hall of Fame, he actually wasn't that good anyway. And these fans, it's so funny, like listen to sports radio for a half hour, you see both of these. These fans will give themselves a pep talk, convincing themselves that everything's going to be fine, even though usually we know, especially in Philadelphia, it doesn't end up going well. But Jesus is doing a lot more here than giving a lame pep talk to his disciples. This isn't, hey guys, you know what? Keep your chins up. It's going to be hard, but everything's going to be cool. Jesus actually says that him leaving is to their advantage. And that sounds almost crazy after all the trials that he's listed that, that are ahead of them. But he says it's to their advantage, and this is not just an empty platitude. It's not just wishful thinking that, you know, I think Peter's really going to step up here. No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus has good reason to say this. Why? Because the helper is coming. Jesus leaving brings the helper. And Jesus is referring here to the Holy Spirit, God, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, just as God the Father is fully God, just as Jesus himself is fully God. And to get an appreciation of, of how big a deal this is, we need to remember the history of what God is doing in the world. God creates, and God creates us. God creates human beings. Humans are made to worship God. They fall away. They sin. And God says, look, I'm not the one who messed this up, but I'm the one who's going to make it right. And he starts small with one family, but that family grows to a nation. But still, the world is weary under the burden of sin and suffering. There, there's more that needs to happen still. And another step comes when a baby named Jesus is born to a seemingly insignificant woman named Mary. 
And throughout the Gospels, we've seen that, that things are clearly changing, right? The sick are, are healed. The blind are, are given sight. Sins are being forgiven. And you can see how everything that, that went wrong so long ago is, is beginning in a small way to be made right. But at the same time, what Jesus was doing was very narrowly focused, right? Focused on a small group of people in one small blip of time. The next step, though, will be much more universal. And that next step comes when Jesus departs and the Spirit comes. And look in our passage at what the Spirit will do. He will come to the disciples and he will do a great and powerful work in the world. Jesus says he is going to convict the world in three ways concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. And as some have pointed out, you know, there's a lot of irony in this section of the passage, because remember, Jesus is about to go to a quote-unquote trial that will lead to his death. But the real story here, as we look back and we read it now, is not that Jesus is on trial, it's actually the world that is on trial. And in a good trial, in a trial that's done well and justly, the pretensions and the alibis, they all fall away, and the truth is revealed for what it is. And Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. The Spirit is going to show things to be what they are. So when it comes to sin, the Spirit will show the world that its sin is because it doesn't believe Jesus. And that's the root of everything else. When it comes to righteousness, the Spirit will show the world the true righteousness of Jesus, the one the world wanted to put on trial. And this is displayed when he ascends to the Father after being crucified and then resurrected from the dead. When it comes to judgment, the, the, the world and the ruler of this world, meaning the enemy of Jesus, the enemy of the church, Satan, will be shown to be in the wrong. And the Spirit is going into the world and showing all of these things to be true. And there's actually a redemptive focus to this. The Spirit does this, and he begins to convince people of these truths. You know, that's why we're sitting here today. It's because the Holy Spirit went forth and convicted us of these things. The Holy Spirit took us, showed us, and convinced us of these things, and he's still doing this work today. He often does it in the hardest circumstances, as Max prayed earlier. Today, there are millions and millions of people gathering. China, Nigeria, Afghanistan, North Korea, many other places today, gathering to worship Jesus. Why? Because this is what the Spirit has done. Because Jesus departed, and the Spirit came and the Holy Spirit has done this work, and he's convinced people often in these places that the values of their oppressors are false. And the same Holy Spirit is going before us today and taking the, the idols that, that tempt us and, and tempt the world around us, and he's revealing them to be empty and meaningless. When Jesus left and the Spirit came, the kingdom of God expanded greatly, and of course this is still happening today. And these are all things that, that, that could not have been known on that night 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And Jesus knows it all, but he's only going to tell the disciples so much at this point. And we see this is true in the final section of our passage. Verses 12 to 15 read, and this is Jesus continuing to speak, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine 
and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus, talking to his disciples, he acknowledges that he's just said a lot, but there is so much more to say. And Jesus, in love for his disciples, he's not going to burden them with everything at once. He knows that they're weak. He knows that they're sorrowful. He knows they're afraid. He knows they're not ready for everything. And he also knows that he doesn't have to tell them everything because the Spirit is coming to continue and expand his ministry. You know, we thought just a few minutes ago about how the Spirit would come and expand kind of the breadth of Jesus' ministry. Now I think we see in this section that the Spirit will also expand the depth of Jesus' ministry in the lives of those who follow him. You know, at the end of this month, some of you may have, have seen it, there's a new highly anticipated documentary coming out about uh, the Beatles, the music group. And I, I, I'm looking forward to watching that. It looks, it looks really good. You know, and I mentioned the Beatles because there's actually a, a big discussion of their place in musical history. Because there's one school of thought that says that, that music in general and rock and roll in particular was kind of plodding along. And then the Beatles came along and changed everything. And now, like, so much of our music is really the outworking of what the Beatles started. But then there's all these other theories as well that, no, actually, the Beatles just picked up what they were doing from other artists, and they were just the ones that became popular because they, like, had a cool accent or something. And, you know, we can have that debate. Yes, email me your thoughts, email me your playlists. Happy to listen. But I think the reason for that debate is something we can agree on because we realize that there are certain big, like, epic-making, uh, big moments and turning points, you know, in music, in, in sports, history, politics, wherever. And then those that come along after that are building upon what's already happened. And that's a little bit what Jesus is talking about when it comes to the ministry of the Spirit in revealing the truth. He says the Spirit will guide the disciples into all truth. And it's not that the remaining truth is unimportant or it's just a little detail here or there, but that everything the Spirit will guide them into is based on the truth that's already been revealed in the coming of Jesus. I know we've been in John for a while, and there was like a pandemic in the middle of it. But if you go way back to the first chapter of John, verse 18, we hear that Jesus is the one who reveals who the Father is. That, that's the big moment when Jesus comes, but it's not the last moment. And the Spirit will continue that ministry by continuing to reveal who God is to the disciples and even to the authors of the New Testament. That's what Jesus means when he says the Spirit will guide them into all truth. And when Jesus says that the Spirit will not speak on his own authority, it means that the way that the Spirit guides them will be completely consistent with everything that's already been revealed in Jesus, right? The Spirit isn't going off and doing his own thing. He's building what has already been done. You know, as Max discussed last week, the Spirit is, is going to continue to shine the light on Jesus and what he has said and what he has done. He's going to take the life and the teaching of Jesus and he's going to continue to speak it to the disciples. And part of this result is that the Bible doesn't stop at the end of the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels, but that the Bible continues with the book of Acts and many other books of the Bible that were written after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But now today, even though the Bible is done, the Spirit continues his ministry by applying his word to every corner of creation and also every corner of our lives. You know, just like the disciples, we can't bear to hear and know everything at once. And the longer we've been walking with Jesus, the more we realize how much deeper 
it all goes. And that we're just never going to plumb the depths of what it means to be known and loved by him. But the Holy Spirit continues to do his work in us, and he deepens this understanding. And I think it's important, you know, part of this understanding is how to approach life in a world that feels hostile to Christians. And Max talked about this last week. You know, I think Jesus has certainly been faithful to his promise that the Spirit would guide the disciples into all truth. See, God has given us both his word, which is authoritative, and also the history of the church, which is not authoritative, but it is instructive in the story of how the Spirit has worked in accordance with the promise of Jesus. At the beginning of our passage, Jesus said he was telling his disciples these hard truths to keep them from falling away. And we saw again how sobering this was for those two reasons. Number one, that following Jesus could mean death. And also, number two, that people would be deluded into doing terrible things in the name of God. And as history has proven, even at times, in the name of Jesus. I think this shows there are multiple ways to dishonor Jesus when experiencing persecution. One way is simply to say, you know what, the persecution isn't worth it. And I'd rather just be, you know, comfortable and go with the flow. And another way to dishonor Jesus is to respond to persecution and try to do God's work in the world's way, through violence, arrogance, and anger. I think both of these dangers are in play today. You know, when Christian truth is unpopular, we can certainly be tempted to just go with the flow so that that we can be popular, we can avoid persecution. And the world is, is really good at this, as we've said. The world is good at making rebellion against God look alluring, and even at making the commands of God look, look unjust and unloving and unkind. And one of the things the Spirit does is continues to impart the truth of his word to us, to keep us from falling away. That's one danger. On the other hand, there's another danger that Max referenced last week, and that's responding to the world's hatred with hatred right back and responding with anger. And that's not the way of Jesus. And one of the challenges we face today, in addition to just going along with the world, is that there are plenty of voices out there, social media, cable news, be it Fox or MSNBC, either one or one of the other ones, that would love to disciple us toward that kind of angry response. And that way does not lead to life. But there is a better way. And we ask that question, How can we be shaped and formed to be more and more people who will be faithful to Jesus in a way that honors him? Basically, to hold God's truth in God's way. And to do this, we turn first and foremost to God's word. We turn to passages like this, where we're reminded that, again, it's not Jesus that's on trial, and not really the church either, it's the world. And this frees us up from from the panic that we might feel when it feels like the world might be going against us. We know that no matter what happens, the Spirit is going before us. He's doing His work. And we see in God's Word, even in the early church, how this played out. Look at the book of Acts. We see Stephen dying for his faith at the hands of those who thought they were serving God. And in the middle of it, because of the Spirit, because of the Spirit's work, he was able to say, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Only the Spirit can do that. And we see this kind of thing over and over. We turn to the Word and we turn to church history because that's the story of how the Spirit has done these things. We remember the early church again after the New Testament days. Remember that name Polycarp? Some of you have heard of him. Arrested as an old man, sent to be killed. 
Do you know what he did with the men who came to arrest him? He greeted them as friends, and he asked that food be brought for them. That's what the Spirit did in the life of Polycarp. He didn't abandon Jesus, and he also didn't just embrace the ways of the world. You know, even more narrowly, we can look at the history of the church here in America and see brothers and sisters who have endured great persecution at times. We don't often think to look to the era before and during the American Revolution. It's good for us to know what Christians, and especially church leaders, went through. Some did not agree with the American Revolution. And if a church leader expressed an opinion that didn't go along with what some of the patriots believed, or even at times if they were neutral on the subject, they were often in big trouble. If they didn't show up for a day of prayer and fasting in support of the revolution, they were often in big trouble. Often their churches were forbidden from meeting. People were forcibly deported. Property was stripped from them. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, they they endured much during this time. They're an example to us today. And I've said it before, but there might be no better example in American history to look for instruction and guidance on how to live in a hostile world than what the Spirit did in the majority black church in America when they endured persecution from many people claiming to follow God, including, sadly, some of our forefathers in the Presbyterian church. And there's a ton of examples, but one I go back to again and again is the example of our brothers and sisters at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, because they believed and because they lived out and preached the truth of God's word about who they were as human beings, made in the image of God, they were targeted. And one Sunday morning in 1963, someone threw a bomb in the church and four young girls were killed right after Sunday school ended. And the pastor there, a guy by the name of John Cross, he was getting ready to preach. He went downstairs and he saw these bodies. And according to the obituary of Reverend Cross, who died in 2007, it says this, As word of the bombing spread, more than 2,000 people gathered at the church, and some began to throw stones and concrete at passing cars with white drivers. Reverend Cross stopped one woman from hurling a brick. I had to reach up and touch her hand, he said. I said, no, you can't settle it like this. Think about what he's just seen. To sobbing, he picked up a bullhorn to address the crowd, and what did he say? He began to recite the 23rd Psalm. See, Reverend Cross and his church did a couple things. They valued following Jesus more than they valued peace with the world, even when it meant terrible persecution. And they lived this out in a way that honored Jesus and didn't give in to the ways of the world around them. Brothers and sisters, that's what God does for his people. That's the work of the Spirit that I so long to see produced in me and in all of us. Because in all of it, we are following the one who said these words to begin with in John 16, our Savior, who has gone before us and done this perfectly, enduring all things for us. The one who died for us and gave himself away for us even while we were yet his enemies, dying on a cross for our sins. And the one who was coming back someday to set everything right and to finally and fully reveal everything for what it is. The pretensions of the world fade away. That day is not here yet, but in the meantime, it's our privilege with the Spirit going before us to hold out the goodness and truth and love of God to a world that so desperately needs it, knowing that he is always with us. Let's pray.
Our Father God, we are so grateful for this passage. We're so grateful for your word, so grateful for the work of the Spirit in inspiring uh, the words to be written down and inspiring the word of God. And we are grateful for the way that you love us and care for us and the way that you wish to prepare us for whatever it is that is ahead. We thank you that oh, you did this work in the lives of the disciples. And as Max reminded us last week that almost all of them would go to their death because, because of following you. And we know that has happened again and again throughout the history of the church. And we thank you for your word and we thank you for church history. And in both of these things, we can see your spirit continuing to do a great work. And we thank you that even when we consider the persecution that has happened, Lord, we just sit back and remember that there are so many brothers and sisters around the world, a work that you have been doing over time and continue to do. And Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to continue to experience your love and kindness towards us. Lord, protect us from just going along with the world when it's to make things easier, and also protect us from adopting the world's methods when we are under attack. And Lord, we just pray uh, that you would help us. We need your spirit to work among us. We thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand. We have one more song to sing, and we'll sing that together to remind one another of God's goodness and kindness. Thank you.